0: to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Rommel is one of the most exciting and inspiring military leaders of all times. His exploits from World War I, recorded in his 1936 book, Infantry Attacks, tells about his actions as a junior officer in World War I. His actions in the Battle of Caporetto in 1917 gives the first insights into Rommel's unique gifts as a commander, and especially how he was going to wage war in France in 1940 and in North Africa between 1941 and 1942. Luckily for Rommel, he never served on the Eastern Front. He was a Nazi, as so many of the top generals of his age were during the Third Reich, and he would most likely have become involved in war crime activity against the Jews and the Russian partisans, but thankfully that never happened. The tribute to Rommel's chivalry was delivered by Winston Churchill on the news of Rommel's forced suicide after the unsuccessful attempt on Hitler's life on 20 July 1944. Part of that tribute is a reference back to this praise, surprisingly from Winston Churchill in the House of Commons in January 1942, when he said of Rommel, We have a very daring and skilful opponent against us, and may I say, across the havoc of war, a great general. And then Churchill's final tribute which appears at the end of the 1951 British movie, The Desert Fox. His ardour and daring inflicted grievous disasters upon us, but he deserves the salute to which I made him in the House of Commons in January 1942. He also deserves our respect, because, although a loyal German soldier, he came to hate Hitler, and all his works, and took part in the conspiracy to rescue Germany by displacing the maniac and tyrant. For this, he paid the forfeit of his life. In the somber Wars of modern democracy, there is little place for chivalry. Rommel's most astounding accomplishments happened over a few days in the dash to the English Channel in 1940 at the head of the 7th Panzer Division. The time has come to tell you about how Rommel disobeyed Hitler and the senior generals in his dash to the Channel, as they were trying to slow things down to a pace that they could understand, but that would not win the campaign. By chance, Rommel had been at the meeting that Hitler's army aide, Schmunt, had organised for Hitler to meet and congratulate the five newly appointed corps commander and Rommel, who had just been appointed to the command of the 7th Panzer Division. But really, it was subterfuge for a secret meeting between Manstein and Hitler to discuss his sickle-cut plan idea. After the official lunch was over, Manstein had that secret meeting. Instead of reprising the Schleifen plan, the main German attack would now come out of the Ardennes over the Meuse and then head west to the mouth of the Somme. Rommel wouldn't have learnt anything about that plan at that luncheon, but he had at least met Manstein. Rommel's division was assigned to Panzerkorps Hoth as part of the 4th Army. Its role was to screen the right flank of Panzer Group Kleist, which included Panzer Corps Guderian. I was surprised to read in Karl-Heinz book Blitzkrieg Legend that Rommel hadn't warmed to Guderian's ideas about tank warfare in the period leading up to World War II. Apparently, he saw something that sparked his interest, though, in the panzers during the war with Poland, although it wasn't what they were doing so much as what Rommel must have imagined that they could, should be doing. The role of the Panzers in Poland had been to play second fiddle to the infantry. Rommel had been in charge in Poland of Hitler's headquarters security, which would have given him the opportunity to see a lot of what was happening. Once the small flame of how to handle panzers in battle had been lit in Rommel, it became an unquenchable blaze. Such was the passion and inexhaustible drive of this man. Karl-Heinz Freiser says this of Rommel. During the campaign in the West, Rommel acted, so as to speak, as assault team leader in a general's uniform. He led his panzers like an infantry assault detachment, and employed the same infiltration tactics he had when he was an Oberleutnant during World War I. This unorthodox way of employing the Panzer Force became the nightmare of his methodical French counterparts. At the same time, Rommel's success constitute impressive evidence of the thesis that German Panzer tactics were in the end crystallized from the assault team tactics Of World War I, Hoth's Panzer Corps had been caught up by the halt order issued on 15 May that I discussed in the previous program. Rommel's division, nonetheless, had approached the Belgian-French border on 16 May. Behind the border on the enemy side was the Maginot Line. This wasn't the Maginot Line proper. It was what was called the extended Meissonneau line. It wasn't nearly as well-developed and daunting as the original Meissonneau line. At 07.50 hours on 16 May, 4th Army received very clear orders from Army Group A that forbade breaking through this fortification. This order followed the determination by the conservative General Georg von Schondenstern chief of staff of Army Group A that a swift move against these fortifications by tanks was impractical. Instead, the panzers were going to be spared for later missions. This view was shared by the chief of staff of the 4th Army as the proper use for the panzers. The 5th Corps of the 4th Army, comprised of two infantry divisions, would be tasked with achieving the breakthrough of these formidable fortifications. When General von Brauchitsch, the commander-in-chief of the German army, arrived at headquarters, 4th Army, on the afternoon of 16 May, he too was in favour of giving the panzers a break from the battle as soon as possible. He wanted to keep them on a short leash. He rejected the idea of pushing their advance to the west towards the English Channel. He ordered that the 4th Army was merely to screen the northern flank. He feared that the Allied intervention troops that advanced into Belgium might launch a counter-attack into the right flank of the 4th Army, if they weren't careful. At 1225 on 16 May, Kluge ordered Rommel's 7th Panzer Division to advance toward the French border for the purposes of scouting the fortification line Behind it. But, he emphasized, no breakthrough! In keeping with the army order for 16 May, von Klug spoke to Rommel and instructed him we will mount a swift surprise attack against the French border fortifications only if the weakness of the garrison promises a sure success. There will be no push to the west beyond those lines into the enemy rear areas without the approval from army. At 14.45 hours that day, when there was no sign of the anticipated enemy counter-attack from the northern flank, von Klug decided to attempt a limited push to the west by the Panzers. Hoth immediately radioed that order to the 7th Panzer Division. This was Only a preliminary order, it would be expanded by a more detailed written order to follow. Rommel didn't wait for the detailed order. The preliminary order was used by him to punch a hole through the French fortifications and then to attack in the direction of Avesnes. The more detailed written orders, much more restrictive in fact than the oral order that had been communicated to Rommel by von Kluge, arrived late at the headquarters of 7th Panzer Division. That was rather unfortunate for von Kluge, in the sense that Rommel and his panzers had already left when the orders arrived. Rommel crossed the French border at around 1,800 hours at Clairfait. Shortly after crossing the border, Rommel saw the sharp contours of the extended Machinot line, with its concrete bunkers, armoured cupulas, minefields and barbed wire entanglements. Any other general would probably have paused and brought up all of his division's strength for an attack first thing the following day. Rommel, as he knew, would then also have had the support from heavy artillery, additional infantry and Luftwaffe dive bombers. Of course, that would mean that the French would have prepared themselves to fight off that attack, which would have lacked any element of surprise. Any sensible general would have taken that safe option. But that wasn't the sort of general that Rommel was. He was truly one of the new breed of panzer generals. He couldn't resist the temptation to ignore his orders and to attempt a sudden surprise attack, to give effect to the blitzkrieg that he must have known Guderian was wanting to pull off. From Rommel's experience as an assault team leader during World War I, he again and again had achieved astonishing successes from surprise raids. But what he was about to attempt was so much more than a surprise raid. It was something entirely novel in military history. And it should have been unthinkable. A massive Panzer night attack against a well-fortified position, without preparation and straight from the move. Like everything that let the German commands deliver the most startling victory to Germany in May-June 1940, it would be cruel and unfair to criticise Rommel's French adversaries, for being unprepared for such an attack. Mind you, they should have been more on their toes than we're about to see. When the attack was launched, the surprise, unsurprisingly, was complete. Rommel's advance detachment punched smack into the first lines of the enemy around 1830. There was no opposing fire. With the alarm now raised, though, the French defenders of the 84th Regiment... 101st Fortress Infantry Division, offered considerable resistance. A German panzer commander reported of his encounter with the French fortified positions. It, meaning the bunker, spits fire. Two vehicles are knocked out, and also from the right, an anti-tank gun fires and hits the command tank of the heavy company. The radio operator has a leg shot off. Commander, unhurt, I am close by with my tank, but take cover. Enemy artillery fires heavily on us with medium-caliber guns. How are we going to get through the bunker line? Big question. In front of us is a thick wire entanglement. Behind it, a broad and deep panzer ditch. And in the middle of the road, anti-tank obstacles have been built. Meanwhile, it is night, While this encounter was taking place, the panzers had already penetrated deeply into the enemy's fieldworks. They were able to neutralise some dangerous bunkers by direct fire on the gun ports. Artillery fire neutralised the rear portions of the French fortified zone. Under cover of the falling darkness, the motorcycle rifle battalion attacked anti-tank gun positions, and machine gun Ness. The engineers accomplished the primary mission during the actual breakthrough phase. Satchel charges and flamethrowers knocked the concrete pillboxes out of action. The engineers then blasted gaps in the barrier belts. Then they destroyed the roadblock west of Clairfay, that was made up of big interconnected steel hedgehogs. With this breach opened, the Panzers punched through, deep into the fortification zone, firing to both sides as they raced along. They were followed by the motorcycle riflemen on their motorcycles and the reconnaissance battalion. Around 2300 hours, they smashed through a second fortification line at Soir-le-Château. By the light of the moon, the German soldiers now could see they had wide-open terrain in front of them. Rommel wrote about this tremendous breakthrough in his diary. The way to the West was now wide open. We were through the Maginot Line. It was hardly conceivable. Twenty-two years before, we had stood for four and a half long years before this self-same enemy and had won victory after victory, but yet finally lost the war. And now, we had broken through the renowned Maginot Line and were driving deep into enemy territory. It was not just a beautiful dream. It was reality. Leaving behind the second French line, Rommel immediately ran into a French artillery position that opened fire on them. He quickly made one of his typical decisions, employing the tactics he had used in Italy during the First World War. He ordered his panzers to race at the French guns at top speed, firing from oil barrels. That wasn't the way German tank crews had been taught to operate. The official drill procedure was to halt and fire for better accuracy. But this wasn't about accuracy. He commented on this encounter. The method that I have ordered of driving into the enemy with all guns firing has worked magnificently. It costs us a lot of ammunition, but it saves tanks and lives. The enemy have not found any answer to this method yet. When we come up on them like this, their nerves fail. If he had been obeying his orders, he should now have halted. But if he did that, the successful breakthrough that he had just achieved would be in vain. The breakthrough had to be immediately exploited by a deep thrust into enemy territory he decided to continue the push, up the road to Avez, even though his advance was now taking place in total darkness. Further along the road he was advancing down, the French 5th Motorised Infantry Division had set up its night-time bivouac. Its vehicles were parked to the left and right along the road, all neatly lined up. In between were elements of the 18th Infantry Division and French 1st Armoured Division, which were also bivouacked there for the night. Rommel's panzers raced right through the middle of these neatly lined up vehicles. They were like targets in a shooting gallery. Once again, Rommel ordered his tanks and infantry to fire broadsides from oil barrels. This spread panic and terror, as recorded in the French After Action Reports, Hundreds upon hundreds of French soldiers and civilians are shaken out of their sleep by the Panzer Regiment that thundered at top speed along the roads, their faces distorted with fear. They lay in the gutters and the roadside ditches, to the right and left of the route of advance. The fire of the Panzer Regiment reaches far into the area to the side of the streets, and causes boundless confusion during this night. Nowhere else during the French campaign were there such apocalyptic scenes as during that night of 1617 May on the road from Sol-le-Château to Avennes. The panzers literally drove over the French 5th Motorised Infantry Division, which had been caught napping. German soldiers, whose units a few hours later drove on this road during daylight, were staggered at the sight that met their eyes. I have never seen anything like the scenes along Rommel's route of advance. His tanks had run into a French division coming down the same road, and they had just kept advancing right on past it. For the next five or six miles, there were hundreds of tanks and trucks, some driven into the ditches, others burned out, many still carrying dead or injured. More and more Frenchmen came out of the fields and woods with abject fear written on their faces and their hands in the air. From up front came the short, sharp crack of the guns of our tanks, which Rommel was personally directing. Standing upright in his ACV, meaning Armoured Command Vehicle, with two staff officers, his cap pushed back, urging everybody ahead. Around midnight, Rommel's punsers arrived at Avennes. That was definitely as far as Rommel was permitted to advance under the loose verbal orders that Hoth had given him. But he didn't stop there. With his lead units, Rommel raced through aven He didn't stop until he got to the hills to the west of the town. The rear part of his column was unaware that Rommel had pressed on, and they remained in the town. The result was that Rommel's contact with his rear units was broken. Rommel waited for quite a while so that his following-up units could close up. At last he heard the distinctive clanking, squeaking sounds of the approaching punzers. He immediately resumed his advance without waiting to get a glimpse of them to verify his assumption. Interestingly, those sounds were coming not from the tracks of German tanks, but from the tracks of French tanks, the last remaining 16 tanks of the French 1st Armoured Division that had been decimated at Flavion by the 5th Panzer Division and the Stukas of the Luftwaffe. These French tanks included some of the monstrous Char B tanks, Now they became engaged with Rommel's separated panzer battalion that had gotten stuck in Aves. This clash turned into a long, drawn-out firefight, with many losses on both sides. The sound of the fighting was heard by Rommel, who guessed that a firefight was underway. He had to stop his advance and send back reinforcements to win this fight. Under the cover of the darkness, Lieutenant Karl Hank, riding in a Panzer IV, part of Rommel's relief force, literally thrust into the rear of the French and smashed the tracks of some of their Char B tanks, the only way his Panzer IVs could disable these French monsters. That nighttime firefight in the streets of aven was decided around a 400 with the last three tanks of the french first armored division the division on which the french had pinned such high hopes just a few days before began their retreat would rommel now obey his orders and halt what do you think thanks for joining me paul in the danger zone If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum borrowing the Danish Kaldsberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, C-Y-K-I-A-E, also available on the same podcast sites.